Well, it is Lent again, the season for preparation of the greatest feast of the church's year, and an opportunity to seriously consider the four last things. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. And that term, the four last things, refers to some fundamental realities that are often contemplated in Christian theology and spirituality, namely death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Now, Lent's considered a particularly appropriate time to meditate on the four last things because it is a penitential season, which means it's a time for spiritual preparation through reflection, mortification, and charity. Hence, during Lent, Catholic believers are called to engage in prayer, fasting, and almsgiving as a means of deepening our relationship with God in anticipation of the celebration of Easter. So meditating on the four last things serves as a reminder of the the temporary nature of earthly life and the importance of focusing on eternal realities. Helps us to reflect on the ultimate purpose of our existence, the consequences of our actions, and the need for repentance and conversion. So death. Death is the inevitable and universal experience of the end of earthly life. Church teaches that death is a consequence of original sin, and that it marks the end of the time of grace and decision. It's a moment of passing from this life to the next, where the soul is separated from the body. To die is to meet God and face the consequences of our actions. So meditating on death during Lent reminds us of the the brevity and the fragility of life. It encourages us to reflect on the ways that we're using our time and resources, and uh, to encourage us to prioritize our relationship with God and with others, with our neighbor. Contemplating death can be inspiring. It can inspire us to, or in us, a sense of urgency in seeking reconciliation with God and living a life of holiness. So that's the first of the four last things. Next is, after judgment, each of us will face our or after death, rather, each of us will face our particular judgment. The Catechism explains in paragraph 1021 that at the moment of death, the soul is judged by God based on that person's faith and works. This judgment determines the soul's eternal destiny, either in heaven or in hell. The particular judgment is immediate and individual and irrevocable. And it's based on God's perfect justice and mercy. So Lent provides you an opportunity to examine your conscience and evaluate the state of your soul. Meditating on judgment reminds Catholic believers that we will be held accountable for our actions and our choices. It encourages self-reflection and repentance and the pursuit of virtue as you strive to align your life with God's will and prepare for the judgment that you will inevitably face. Now, speaking of inspiring, heaven is the state of eternal communion with God, where the souls of the righteous experience perfect happiness and union with him. Catechism teaches in paragraph 1023 that heaven is the ultimate goal of human existence, where the soul enjoys the beatific vision, Beholding God face to face, it is a state of eternal joy and peace and fulfillment where all such desires are perfectly satisfied as they cannot be in this life. 
Now, reflecting on heaven during Lent can inspire hope and a longing for eternal union with God. And it reminds us that the ultimate goal of our lives is to be with God in perfect happiness and fulfillment. So meditating on heaven can motivate you to detach yourself from worldly concerns and focus on seeking the kingdom of God. Then finally, hell. Hell is the state of eternal separation from God, where souls who have rejected his love and grace experience the eternal consequences of their choices. But hell can be inspiring too. Paragraph 1033, the Catechism describes hell as self-exclusion from communion with God and the company of the blessed. It is a state of eternal suffering and loss where the soul is forever deprived of the presence of God and experiences the consequences of its rejection of his love. So contemplating hell during Lent serves as a reminder of the consequences of sin and the importance of avoiding spiritual complacency. It encourages us to to stop just going through the motions, to examine our lives and identify those areas of sin and, and weakness that need to be addressed. Meditating on hell, therefore, can inspire a desire for repentance and conversion and a renewed commitment to living a life of holiness. Like it says in, in Sirach 736, in everything you do, remember your last end and you will never sin. So death marks the end of eternal life and judgment determines the eternal destiny of the soul. Heaven is the state of eternal communion with God while state or hell is the state of eternal separation from God. By meditating on the four last things during Lent, we, you and I, are invited to deepen our understanding of the eternal realities and to make necessary changes in our lives. See, meditating on the four last things, it's about living in reality. It's about, you know, refocusing our priorities and seeking reconciliation with God and striving for holiness as we journey toward the celebration of Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And it's important to note that while meditating on the four last things can be challenging and sobering, it is ultimately a reminder of God's mercy and, and love and the opportunity for redemption. It is an invitation to turn to God, seek his forgiveness, and embrace his grace in order to attain eternal happiness with him. And that's no nonsense. <clears throat> okay, last week we had our first installment of a new segment that I call Red Letter Catholicism, uh, because it will begin with the words, or with words spoken by our Lord Jesus, which are often printed in red ink in the Bible, hence Red Letter Catholicism. And this week, I'd like to take a quick look at another fruitful meditation for Lent, which is the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted in the cause of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. In the same manner, they persecuted the prophets who preceded you. Obviously, there's a lot here, <laughs> fruitful for meditation. I, I have on this very program commented on each one of the Beatitudes at some length. I will not be doing that today. Rather, I would like to share some words from the current Bishop of Rome. Now, I admit that I have criticized the current pontificate, but I've also warned against the danger of cultivating a, a critical spirit, I mean, the, the spiritual danger. But the fact is that Jorge Bergoglio has said many good and edifying things as Pope, and I promised last week that I would share some words from the Holy Father on the Beatitudes, which are particularly applicable to the season of Lent. Uh, in his apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exultate, Pope Francis said, quote, Nothing is more enlightening than turning to Jesus' words and seeing his way of teaching the truth. Jesus explained with great simplicity what it means to be holy when he gave us the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, he says, are like a Christian's identity card. So if anyone asks, what must one do to be a good Christian? The answer is clear. We have to do, each in our own way, what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, we find a portrait of the Master, which we are called to reflect in our daily lives. Uh, in other words, the imitation of Christ. The word blessed or happy, he says, thus becomes a synonym for holy. It expresses the fact that those faithful to God and his word, by their self-giving, gain true happiness. The Beatitudes are in no way trite or undemanding, quite the opposite. We can only practice them if the Holy Spirit fills us with his power and frees us from our weakness, our selfishness, our complacency, and our pride. Let us listen once more to Jesus with all the love and respect that the Master deserves. Let us allow his words to unsettle us, to challenge us, and to demand a real change in the way we live. Otherwise, holiness will remain no more than an empty word. Those who really wish to give glory to God by their lives, who truly long to grow in holiness, are called to be single-minded and tenacious in their practice of the works of mercy. I recommend rereading the Beatitudes frequently, he said, referring back to them, praying with them, trying to embody them. They will benefit us. They will make us genuinely happy. Welcome words from Pope Francis. And that's no nonsense. Okay. Before I became Catholic, and this is what we're going to be talking about when we come back from the break, uh, the most scripture that I was, uh, you know, that I was exposed to in a year was typically uh, Linus Van Pelt reciting the Nativity story on a Charlie Brown Christmas. And since we're talking about spiritual reading in Lent, the Beatitudes and so on, when we come back, I would like to share the first five of my Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study. And we'll do the back five next week. So that's coming up and more when we return with No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stay with us and we'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, coming to you today from soggy Southern California. It's more rain, a little unseasonable, but very welcome. Uh, I was mentioning before the break that I am an adult convert who grew up essentially unchurched, as they say. And when I converted at age 36, I, you know, I really wanted to study the Bible. But my first experience at a parish Bible study was, well, shall we say, less than edifying. We read from the scripture, and then we went around the room talking about what it meant to each of us. Now, there is a real benefit from reading the Bible existentially, you know, to applying it to your life. But I didn't pay for materials and give up my Wednesday night so that I could tell other people what I thought the Bible meant. I wanted to know what does the church say it means. Uh, some years later, I enrolled in a college-level course of study at a well-known Catholic University here in Southern California, which shall remain nameless, but uh, its initials are LMU. And it's the same course in Scripture given to the seminarians. But unfortunately, it was just chock full of questionable interpretations, some of which were directly opposed to the infallible teaching of the church. Now, I'm all for academic freedom, but Catholic professors have a duty to, a duty to teach in line with the tradition and magisterium of the church. I mean, heresy is an ugly word, but if the shoe fits. I think the problem <clears throat> really is that too many folks uh, in so-called higher biblical study think that a, a skeptical, critical, demythologizing approach to the scriptures, uh, what Benedict XVI called the hermeneutic of suspicion, they think that's the church's official interpretational method, but it is not. And how do I know? Because I went to the catechism, naturally, where I discovered a refreshingly traditional mentality. According to, to the tradition of the church, there's two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, with the spiritual being subdivided into three parts, each with its own sphere of meaning. And so it was these four senses of Scripture that provided you know, medieval biblical interpret interpretation, uh, like that of Bernard of Clairvaux or you know, St. Bonaventure, with all its richness. And these four senses of Scripture are nicely summarized by a medieval couplet. Latera gesta docet, quid credas allegoria, moralis quidagas, quotendas anagogia. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, anagogy or destiny. Okay, Latin is better for poetry. Uh, but that's fine for the Middle Ages, you may say, but, but does that apply today? Well, apparently so, since this couplet appears in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 118. Catechism actually devotes several paragraphs just to the four senses of Scripture. And notice that the Catechism, uh, the, the 1992 Catechism, a modern post-Vatican II teaching instrument, displays a decidedly traditional, and I would say a medieval, mentality on the Bible. According to paragraph 116, the literal sense is the meaning conveyed by the words of Scripture, following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of Scripture are based on the literal. Now, that's a, a quote from Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica. So once again, you've got the Catechism quoting a medieval source as definitive. But what of the uh, spiritual sense or senses? I said it's broken into three parts. Well, according to paragraph 117, quote, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of Scripture, but also the realities and events about which it speaks can be signs. So, the allegorical sense, Catechism says, which sees events and people as signs or types 
So the crossing of the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also a Christian baptism. Uh, this way of reading scripture is called typology. Uh, next, we have the moral sense. Uh, scripture ought to lead us to act justly, it says. As St. Paul says, they were written for our instruction. And then the anagogical sense, which the Catechism says, wherein we view scriptural events in terms of their eternal significance, leading us toward our true homeland. The uh, anagogue in the Greek means leading. Thus, it says, the church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem, and it cites Revelation 21 and 22. So this section of the Catechism ends with a quote from Dei Verbum, which is the uh, Vatican II document, or the dogmatic constitution on the sacred scripture is called. It says, it is the task of exegetes, that's people who interpret the Bible, to work according to these rules towards a better understanding and explanation of the meaning of sacred scripture in order that their research may help the church to form a firmer judgment. That is, biblical scholarship should clear things up, not confuse them. For, of course, the Catechism goes on, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the Church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the Word of God. So that's Catechism number 119 and De Verbum 12. Uh, paragraphs 74 through 141 of the Catechism, all about what the Church has to say on Scripture and its interpretation. But in summary, the preferred method of scriptural interpretation is essentially medieval. And regardless of the prevailing trends in, in biblical study or alleged new discoveries of Bible scholars, all of it is subject to the authority of the Church, which submission to authority also displays uh, a decidedly medieval mentality, thanks be to God. Because people, even Catholics, study the Bible for many different reasons. History, research, theology, and apologetics, to name a few of the, of the legitimate ones. But what is the primary goal of Bible study? That's the question before us today. That was the question I asked myself in that uh, parish Bible study, and again at, at LMU. Well, in 1993, some years before I became Catholic, I discovered that Pope St. John Paul II gave an address to the Pontifical Biblical Commission. Now, for decades, a century or more, more than a century, the Pontifical Biblical Commission has counted among its members some of the best educated, most renowned Catholic biblical scholars in the world, including Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, the late Pope Benedict XVI, who was possibly the first pope in the history of history, who was also a, a world-class biblical scholar. However, I you know, hasten to point out that his immediate predecessor, Pope St. John Paul II, was no stranger to higher education. He held two doctorates, one in theology and another in philosophy. And yet, when this very learned pope addressed this body of very learned Catholic biblical scholars, he made three very basic points. Number one, he said, the Bible is not just another book, but the inspired Word of God. Number two, because the Bible is the Word of God, he said, it has an eternal value, which I like to think is, you know, he's basically saying that, that there's no expiration date on the truth. And number three, he said that authentic Bible study, quote, puts the believer in touch 
with a personal relationship with God. Unquote. And there you have it. See, St. John Paul reminded modern biblical scholars that there's no expiration date on the truth, nor is it the task of biblical exegetes to find some new message in the Bible. On the contrary, their task is to make the unchanging message of the Bible relevant to each generation of believers so that we, you and I, may have a close and personal relationship with God, with Jesus. And the point is, you don't need to be a scholar to read the Bible with profit, because the gospel was delivered precisely to the simple. I mean, that, that's the first thing you discover when you actually read the New Testament. Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson uh, reminds us that it was the man in the street who understood our Lord, and the doctor of the law who was perplexed and offended. Jesus himself uh, said to God the Father, I, I thank you. I thank you, I praise you, I confess to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and have revealed them to children, that is, to the childlike. And speaking of a medieval, uh, medieval mentality, according to Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ, Catholics can and should read the Bible in the spirit in which it was written. And according to the Catechism, it's submission to the authority of the Church. Why? Because when you do, in the words of Pope Benedict XVI, you will find yourselves led to contemplate the real God and to read the events of history through his eyes. You will savor in fullness the joy that is born of truth. Amen. And so without further ado, my Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study. And this is not exhaustive, it's just the ten things that I think about when I approach the Holy Scriptures. And the first is, thou shalt pray before you read. Right? Now, to a Catholic, this advice might seem rather obvious. I mean, <clears throat> after all the great uh, liturgical works of the Church, Holy Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, combine prayer with Scripture. But it is easy to overlook, I mean, and that's why Vatican II reminds us Quote, this is from Dave Verbum 25, prayer should accompany the reading of sacred scripture, because in the sacred books, <clears throat> the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. It's traditional, uh, therefore, to pray the Come Holy Spirit prayer before uh, reading scripture. Many Catholic Bibles include it in the opening pages. <clears throat> Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. That, by the way, is a scriptural prayer taken from Psalm 104, uh, verse 30. Most Catholic prayer books include this prayer, and uh, might have a prayer before spiritual reading, or a prayer before any good work. Or, of course, you may simply pray in your own words. Whichever method works best for you, pray before you read, and remember that prayer shouldn't end there. You can pray after your reading. You should pray during your reading, even. It's to ask the Holy Spirit's help to understand and then to apply what you've read. Because of much, uh, much of what you encounter in Holy Scripture uh, is only going to be enlightening for you if you have a relationship with God through prayer. Therefore, the greater your devotion to prayer, the more effective your Bible reading will be. And then finally, reading scripture is itself a method of praying. 
and the church grants a partial indulgence to the faithful who make a spiritual reading from Scripture, that is to read it, um, you know, prayerfully with the respect that it's due, with, with you know, reverence. You get a, a partial indulgence for spiritual reading from sacred Scripture and a plenary indulgence if that reading is continued for at least half an hour. The Church teaches us that Holy Scripture is a spiritual treasury and prayer is the key. It is about communication. It's about a conversation. In the words of St. Jerome, he said, when we pray, we speak to God. But when we read, when we read the Bible, God speaks to us. So the next uh, commandment of Catholic Bible study is, thou shalt read the Bible in the spirit in which it was written. Second most popular Catholic book of all time after the Holy Bible is The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Uh, and we're going to talk about what that says about reading the Bible in the spirit in which it was written and lots more when we return with uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Also going to be looking at the readings for the first Sunday of Lent and more when we return right after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic, talking about the Ten Commandments of Bible Study and Commandment number two, thou shalt read the Bible in the spirit in which it was written. Um, the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, which was written in the Middle Ages as a guide for novice monks, uh, has been a light for faithful Catholics for centuries. And according to the Imitation, if you would read the Scriptures with profit, read with humility, simplicity, and faith and read them in the spirit in which they were written. So far, so good. But how precisely does one go about reading the Bible in the spirit in which it was written? Understanding God's Word is a gift from God. Uh, Pope St. John Paul II said that the Scriptures were, in his words, dictated by the Holy Spirit. And it's that same Spirit that comes into your soul at baptism. And then you receive the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit in confirmation. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Each one of these gifts of the Spirit should be exercised when reading the Scripture and strengthened by reading the Scripture. And so that's why the next commandment of Catholic Bible study is connected with this idea of reading Scripture in the Spirit in which it was written, namely... Thou shalt read the Bible in and with the Church. Now, for Catholics, that means first and foremost that the, the proper context of Scripture reading is the Holy Mass. You know, Mass itself is thoroughly biblical. It's comprised of, of biblical readings and prayers and themes and is the fulfillment of two eternally significant scriptural events, namely the Last Supper and the Sacrifice of Calvary. Now, the liturgical cycle of readings, that is, the lectionary itself, constitutes a superb reading plan. You know, why do you think we go over the Sunday uh, Gospels and or Epistles on, uh, each week here on the program? Now, the ordinary form, the Novus Ordo lectionary, has three one-year Sunday cycles and a two-year 
daily cycle, and and the the one the Sunday cycles include an Old Testament reading, along with the Epistle and Gospel. Now, the extraordinary form does not have Old Testament readings for for some of the feasts, but the ordinary form for every Sunday and feast day, or I should say, the extraordinary form does have some Old Testament readings for some of the feasts, but not for every Sunday and feast day. The inclusion of the uh, regular Sunday Old Testament readings in the Ordinary Form Lectionary was to show forth the, the types and figures that are fulfilled in the Gospel, while the New Testament reading provides inspired instruction for the Church today, and then even as it did for the Church in the first century. And then the Gospel, of course, is our primary source of knowledge for Christ, or knowledge of Christ, I should say. So a weekly study on the Sunday readings not only keeps you in step with the Church's year, but, you know, provides a, a built-in reading plan that's tailor-made for you to understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. Many Catholic Bibles uh, include a, a list of the lectionary readings for the Holy Mass, uh, you know, years A, B, and C for the Sundays, and then the two-year daily cycle. <clears throat> and the U.S. Bishop's website, usccb.org, maintains a calendar, you know, which hyperlinked right to the readings uh, for the daily and Sunday um, mass that you can access online for free. But the scriptural nature of the Mass doesn't end with the readings. The Gloria from Luke 2.14, the responsorial psalm, right, taken from the book of Psalms, the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy from Revelation chapter 4, the Consecration, also known as the Institution Narrative from 1 Corinthians and the Synoptic Gospels, the Our Father from Matthew 6, 9-13, the Lamb of God, from John 1, 29, the, the Domini non sum dinius, Lord, I am not worthy, from Matthew chapter 8, all these and more taken directly from the inspired pages of the Holy Bible. You know, sometimes our, our fundamentalist friends said you should go to a Bible-believing church. Well, nobody can hold a candle to the Catholic Church when it comes to Bible and Sunday worship. Now, the other common liturgical cycle of the Church is the Liturgy of the Hours, or the Divine Office, which is based around the Psalms and and canticles and other readings from the Bible. Also, Catholic devotions like the Angelus and the Holy Rosary offer prayers that are based on passages of Scripture accompanied by meditation on biblical events as yet another way to experience the Scriptures in and with the Church. According to St. John Paul II, docility, docility to the Holy Spirit produces and reinforces another attitude needed for correct biblical interpretation, fidelity to the Church. The Catholic exegete does not entertain the individualist illusion leading to the belief that one can better understand the biblical texts outside the community of believers. The contrary is true. That's from his address on the interpretation of the Bible in the Church. And I would hasten to point out that the community of believers— in which we experience the scriptures, also includes the communion of saints, such as the church on earth. And it's especially good to study the biblical interpretation of the saints and doctors of the church and to ask for their intercession. See, the teaching of these men and women is an authentic expression of the understanding of scripture within the community of believers. And you will find the practice of of Bible reading in and with the Church, well represented in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which leads us to the next commandment of Catholic Bible study. Commandment number four, the Catechism shall be thy first and best Bible study aid. 
Uh, you may have heard that once upon a time, Catholics were forbidden to read the Bible. Maybe at some point you believed it yourself. But this is simply not true. Now, it is true that certain versions of the Bible were put on the index of forbidden books or even gathered up and burned. But that was due to faulty translations or, or heretical notes. These aren't proper copies of the Bible to begin with. You know, in fact, back in the days of the index, Catholics were only allowed to read official Catholic Bibles with approved notes on difficult or disputed passages. And that remains the preferred practice. You know, even though there's no longer uh, an index of forbidden books, it's also important to be aware that uh, while the Bible is certainly inspired, the various translations, uh, much less footnotes or commentaries, are not. Hence, the Catechism provides a sure guide to help you understand the Bible in relation to sacred tradition and the magisterium. For example, you want to do a Bible study on a, on a particular topic of the faith, like baptism, let's say. Looking up the relevant paragraphs in the Catechism will provide you with plenty of scriptural references. In fact, much of the Catechism, and this has been true throughout, true throughout history, uh, much of the Catechism is little more than a gathering together of biblical texts. Um, Catechism of the Catholic Church is also a fine cure for some problem verses, so-called. Sometimes Catholics are challenged by our separated brethren with Bible verses that seem to contradict Catholic doctrine. And it is a simple matter to see if such verses are in the Catechism's scriptural index. And if so, by discovering the context in which such verses are cited, you can gain insight into the Church's authentic understanding of them. Conversely, uh, as I already mentioned, if you look up some doctrine in the Catechism, you'll find the Bible verses cited in support of it. In the, what should have been pivotal document, Novo Millennio Eniunte, Pope St. John Paul II laid out a seven-point plan for Catholics to survive the third millennium with their faith intact. And number six on that list is meditating on the scriptures and the new catechism, new at the time. The Bible and the Catechism go hand in hand. You know, uh, um, a Protestant preacher, Billy Graham, famously said, show me a man whose Bible has fallen apart, and I'll show you a man whose life isn't. Well, if I may be permitted a paraphrase, show me a Catholic whose Catechism is falling apart, and I'll show you a Catholic whose faith isn't. As I mentioned before, in paragraphs 74 through 141 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you will discover a treasure trove of magisterial instruction on how you should approach reading and understanding the Holy Bible as a Catholic. And I heartily recommend familiarizing yourself with those paragraphs before undertaking your next Bible study. But you can't study the Bible without a Bible to study. Hence the, the last of the commandments that we're going to look at today, number five, thou shalt choose thy Bible wisely. Now, for well, I've been more than 25 years now, people have asked me, which is the best translation of the Bible for Catholics? And of course, they mean English translation. And, and the customary answer to that question, which is the best Bible for me, is the, the one which you'll read. And, and there's, certain, there's some truth to that, because an unread Bible won't do you any good, whatever translation you choose. But as a Catholic, you should be aware of some important guidelines when choosing a Catholic Bible translation. And naturally, like I said, I can only speak to English translations of the Bible. But first things first, 
although there is no longer an index of forbidden books, it's still important for Catholics to read a Catholic Bible. Both Catholic and Protestant Bibles include the 27 books of the New Testament, but Protestant Bibles only have 39 books in the Old, while Catholic Bibles have 46 Old Testament books. Seven of the Old Testament books, Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch, as well as sections of Esther and Daniel, are called the Deuterocanonical books, and they were removed from the Protestant Bible by the Reformers. But the Catholic Church has always considered these books, like the rest of the Bible, to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's well to know that, that an authentically Catholic translation will have been granted a bishop's imprimatur, which is Latin for let it be printed. But caveat emptor, as long as we're doing our Latin, you know, buyer beware, that doesn't mean that the bishop personally endorses that particular translation or that he agrees with every choice of the translator. But his imprimatur is an assurance that the translation is complete and that it's free from error in matters of faith and morals. And there are many approved um, editions in English for Catholics, including the New American Bible, which is currently the official English translation for liturgical use in the United States, the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, and the New Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, um, the RSVCE and the NRSVCE, both of which are modern revisions of the King James Bible in Catholic editions. Uh, the NRSVCE is used for the liturgy in Australia and Canada, and the RSVCE for the Anglican Ordinariate Mass, and a combination of the two uh, is used for English translations of official Vatican documents and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Okay, back with more after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You're talking about English translations of the Bible. We've talked, covered the New American Bible, the the RSV and the NRSV in Catholic editions that are um, used in liturgy outside of the United States. Um, you might be interested to know, and those are, like I mentioned, they're Catholic editions of essentially the King James Bible, revised versions. And the current English translation for liturgy in the UK is the ESV in Catholic edition. That's the English Standard Version, which is yet another modern revision of the King James Bible. Uh, that is the Bible that was used um, for Augustine Institute's Bible in a year. If you get the Amen app, you can listen to me read the entire Bible out loud over a year's time, if that is your inclination. Uh, but uh, in England and Wales, for, for many decades, um, the liturgy was celebrated with a combination of the Jerusalem Bible, which is a French version that was translated into English back in 1966, and is the Bible. If you ever watch EWTN, you see those old clips of Mother Angelica reading from the Bible. That's the version that she liked. And, uh, and also, they use the Grail Psalter for the Psalms. That is the translation of the Psalms. It's also used in the current U.S. version of the Liturgy of the Hours. Just a few years ago, back in 2019, the USCCB required, or acquired, rather, the rights to the revised Grail from the monks of Conception Abbey and released a new revision called the Abbey Psalms and Canticles, revision of the Grail Psalms, which is gradually being incorporated into the official liturgical books in the U.S. There's others. Uh, there's a Good News translation and the contemporary English version, which are ecumenical modern English translations, 
prepared by the American Bible Society that have been granted a, a bishop's imprimatur. And of course, my favorite, the traditional Dewey Reims translation, 16th century English translation of the Latin Vulgate, which was used by Catholics pretty much exclusively for about three and a half centuries. Uh, and then finally, the version that I'm using most often on the show these days is called the New Catholic Bible, a uh, contemporary translation done by a group of translators headed by Father Jude Winkler for the Catholic Book Publishing Company. It's in many ways similar to the New American Bible, but I find it both more readable and in some significant ways, especially regarding so-called inclusive language, it's also a more formal translation. But even among Catholic Bibles, it's important to recognize the differences in approach used by the translators and what that means to you. Now, broadly speaking, there's two types of biblical translation, namely formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. As far as possible, formal, formal translations try to render the original language text word for word into the receptor language. It's not always possible. But examples would be the Dewey-Reims Bible and the Revised Standard Version. Uh, a dynamic translation aims to render the meaning of the original text in a way that's accessible to the reader, even if that means using different words. Examples would be the, the Jerusalem Bible and the Good News translation. Of course, the problem there is that uh, interpretations run, or uh, translations run the risk of becoming interpretations. Right, the New American Bible was an attempt to, to balance the two styles, to, to provide a text that would be dynamic enough to be suitable for you know, modern liturgical proclamation, but formal enough to be used for serious study and scholarship. It's not only the official English text for the liturgy in the United States, it's also the most popular. However, uh, the NAB, for my taste, is it's too, dynamic in, too dynamic in some ways and not enough in others. Uh, and, of course, there's the issue of its use of inclusive language. Uh, Father Rutler once commented on that. He said, in their quest to avoid male pronouns, quote, Our Lord sometimes sounds like the Prince of Wales. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world? And at other times, like a bored anthropologist, two people went up to the temple to pray. But then, he says, the inevitable pronouns kick in, and we learn that these two were men. Hence, in most cases, I prefer the New Catholic Bible. Now, next week, I will give you my personal litmus test for judging a Catholic Bible's English translation, so tune in for that. All of that said, I, I frequently use several of the just-named translations, but the good news is that you don't have to buy them all. Each and every one is available online for free at BibleGateway.com, and that's a good way to compare and contrast before you invest in a personal Bible. Uh, besides translation, there's also some practical points to consider when you're choosing your study Bible, you should look for one that has fairly large type, soft cover, well-made, stand up, something that you're willing to, to highlight and underline and write notes. In other words, a study Bible is not a family heirloom. So perhaps in the end, the, the stock answer, the best Bible for you is the one you'll read, has some merit. Ultimately, the important thing is to be sure it's a Catholic edition with an imprimatur. Okay, all this talk about Bible study, and we have yet to look at this week's Sunday readings. The Gospel for yesterday's first Sunday of Lent in the Ordinary Form, taken this year from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the desert. He remained there for 40 days, during which time he was tempted by Satan. He lived there among the wild beasts while the angels ministered to him. After John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, 
The time of fulfillment has arrived, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. <clears throat> Mark's account of the temptation in the desert is the epithiest uh, amongst the gospels. Not only does he give us no details about the temptation itself, he doesn't even mention the fast. And he gets right to the action, then, with the arrest of John the Baptist, immediately followed by our Lord taking up John's refrain, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, which is our lesson for the season of Lent. And in the epistle, which is taken from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, for Christ also suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but raised to life in the spirit. In the spirit also, he went to preach to the spirits in prison, those who had refused to obey long ago, while God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. In it, only a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. This water prefigured baptism, which saves you now. It does so not by the washing away of dirt from the body, but by a pledge of a good conscience given to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has entered heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Coincidentally, this uh, reference to baptism, the one I used in my example of allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And so we see the typology was practiced by the apostles themselves. But Paul says, in the Spirit, Jesus went to preach to the spirits in prison. Now, the common interpretation is that Jesus, after his death on the cross, descended into the realm of the dead, uh, often referred to as the harrowing of hell, or sent into hell. And this interpretation is the basis for Article 5 of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. Not the hell of the damned, where the demons reside, but the limbo of the fathers, what Jesus called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16 the place where the souls of the just waited for the Messiah to come and open the gates of heaven. Clement of Alexandria conjectured that uh, Christ went to proclaim the good news and offer salvation to those who had been disobedient during the time of Noah. Augustine suggests the spirits in prison referred to the fallen angels. And according to that view, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, proclaimed his victory over sin and death to these demonic spirits who had been amongst the, the angels and authorities and powers. Right, demonstrating his authority and triumph over evil. It's a good example of why the catechism is, is my favorite Bible study aid. Because, you know, the varying interpretations of biblical exegetes and their theological reflection over the centuries have some genuine merit. But the catechism clearly affirms our belief in the magisterial teaching of Jesus' descent into hell, stating in paragraph 632, quote, Jesus, like all men, experienced death and in his soul joined the others in the realm of the dead. But he descended there as Savior, proclaiming the good news to the spirits imprisoned there. So, while the precise meaning of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison is not explicitly defined in the Catechism, and while various interpretations exist within the tradition, within Catholic theology and biblical exegesis, the magisterial teaching is that Jesus' descent into hell involved proclaiming the good news to those who died before his resurrection, as well as demonstrating his victory over evil to the fallen angels. And that's no nonsense. Okay, that's another one wrapped up. That's a wrap on, on this week's No-Nonsense Catholicism, No-Nonsense Catholic. Glad to have you along with us. Uh, things are going great guns. 
at the Virgin Most Powerful, but we do need your help. We need um, your spiritual support, of course. We we absolutely depend upon your prayers. And we also uh, look for your financial support if you are in a position to offer it. Um, you know, if you can send us a little something, especially um, if you can become a monthly donor. And if you become a monthly donor at, at the level of $25 a month or more, then there's uh, a bunch of perks associated with it. We have a uh, monthly fireside chat. We're going to record one, uh, Terry Barber and I, tomorrow, in fact. That's exclusive to our 25 and over monthly donors. And there's other things as well. You can, uh, you know, you can go to our Patreon. You can go to vmpr.org and discover um, the various benefits. And you can click on Donate Now, or you can become a monthly donor uh, very easily just by visiting the website. And I want to encourage you to do that because without your help, you know, these we, we provide these programs for free, but they're not free to produce, as they say. So if you can help us with that financially, we really appreciate it. But if especially you can support us or continue to support us spiritually, pray for us. We are praying for you. In fact, we offer Holy Mass for your intentions every day at the Sacred Heart Chapel at the uh, Virgin Most Powerful Campus in Covina, California. So... Uh, that's all I have to say about that. Next week, we are going to return with five more of the Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible study. Also, it is my intention to speak about what I call my litmus test for judging a Catholic translation. And that is, there are certain key verses that anytime I, I pick up a new Catholic version of the Bible in English, the first thing I do is head for those verses and see how they are translated, and if there is any kind of bias. Because some of the uh, impermodern works, like I said, they, that's not an endorsement from the bishop. It just says that there's no, no errors in faith or morals. doesn't mean it's the very best translation or that he approves of every word of the translator. And so it's well to discern between them, I think, based on uh, whether or not the interpretation shows any kind of denominational bias. Uh, other than Catholic, which <laughs> obviously I think is a good thing. So uh, we're going to take a look at that when we uh, uh, come back next week. And some other things as well. Got uh, lots of stuff planned already for next week. And I hope that you've enjoyed our going to the catechism more often. Uh, because again, John Paul II told us scripture in the catechism is what's going to get us through the third millennium with our faith intact. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless. God bless.